Hello and welcome to episode number 12 of Earth Repair Radio. The bark beetles, it's an epidemic. They're killing the trees. Wrong. Totally wrong. The trees are stressed. Their turgor pressure, meaning their blood pressure, if you will, their sap pressure, is way down. So the bugs are only the, are basically doing ecological cleanup work. They're not killing the trees. They're the last blow. We can start moving forests and preserving refugia in the more cooler slopes of these complex mountain ranges while we start to manage the more solar exposed slopes by controlled grazing, controlled burning, harvesting, more eyes on the landscape. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we've got a special guest. We've got Tom Ward, a.k.a. Hazel, who's one of the old-growth permaculture teachers and practitioners in the U.S. Hazel is deep local, living simply on the land in southern Oregon's Siskiyou Mountains. Hazel is a storyteller and a wizard with site planning and stewarding the land in a very fire-prone landscape and is here today to share over 30 years of experience practicing permaculture and working on large-scale land development. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Hazel. How are you? Well enough. Thank you. Yourself? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk to me today from Southern Oregon. We have had such an intense wildfire season here in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., and I just wanted to start at the beginning of the story with you here and talk to us about what are the basic patterns of how fire moves through the landscape. Well, wildfire moves through the landscape according to slope, wind, and fuel. And, um, and wildfire moves through the landscape very differently according to what phase it's in. So when wildfire first begins, it has one behavior. And then as it grows, it develops its own weather and is unpredictable in its behavior. It becomes chaotic. And then as wildfire starts to slow down because of weather changes, usually, not because of firefighting, not because of resisting it. Um, Then it enters its final stage. Its mop-up phase is what they call it when they're the firefighters, but I like to call it the the completion phase, (laughs) the wrap-up, because it does very important things at the end. So there's, it's really very complicated. And the, the professional firefighters have lots of books about the humidity, the condition of the fuels, the type of weather, um, the landscape, uh, and especially aspect. And that's a word I want to use, which many people are not familiar with. Aspect, A-S-P-E-C-T, is the direction a slope faces. So, yeah, so it sounds like in the early stages, uh, the spread of fire is fairly predictable, 
more so. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then it, because, you know, we had all these crazy fires here this summer in the Pacific Northwest, and we had fires in places that don't normally carry fire. We don't expect the coastal rainforest near Brookings to carry fire. We don't necessarily expect the Columbia Gorge uh, near Portland to carry large fires. And it seemed like once these fires got really big, it seems like they just sort of spread any which way. Um, so, you know, it's it seems like because we had such a hot summer, that seemed to um, create the conditions where fire could spread in these areas that had never, you know, previous had not recently uh, had wildfire spreading. Do you see a connection between the heating of the climate and the alteration of fire patterns and which ecosystems are going to burn? Yes, um, but there's another first point, which is fine fuels. So this year was actually here in southern Oregon, and I believe up at, uh, at the gorge as well and on the coast, we've had two winters of good rain. And that this year led to quite a bit of growth of grasses and shrubs, understory plants close to the ground. And then we got the hot summer, which dried out those fine fuels. And those fine fuels became the tinder for the start of, of fire at the start of the fire, moving it more quickly into the chaotic phase of fire weather. So it's more complicated than just um, climate change drying things out. And down here, the climate change people who have been trying to predict, which is always a risky thing, um, have said shorter, wetter winters, longer, hotter summers. And so if that is a template that we're dealing with, we need to take that into account when we do design work, when we're planning to protect our homes. And I'm sure we're going to talk more about that. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and in, that, in that initial stage, I mean, we, you said we have wind, slope, and vegetation. Is there one of those that is more uh, dominant of an indicator of what direction, you know, fire is going to come from, say, if you're doing an assessment of your own property? Yeah, there's a recipe. <laughs> and it's an amazing thing, which I don't fully understand. But in the Northern Hemisphere, under the first hour or two of a fire starting up, it seems to always move from the southeast towards the northwest. Hmm. Why that is the case? We don't entirely know Coriolis effect, some people have said, but it's observable. And when I was on the um, forestry committee for the city of Ashland, I was able to see the maps of the initial startup of fires. Every single one of them moved towards the northwest. Wow. But that said, if you've got a chimney, which is a valley or a gulch, a gully that runs uphill, from the southeast towards the northwest, that's going to accelerate the initial conditions. And if you've got any uphill slope at all moving from the southeast to the northwest, that's going to also accelerate 
initial conditions or initial fire behavior, I should say. Um, and then what are your fuels? So if your fuels are nicely stacked, say, which is commonly the case, that a fire starts on a roadside hmm, for lots of reasons we can imagine. And um, cigarettes thrown out the window is the classic. And if the sides of the road have heavy fuels because they've been not mowed or that's where the most logging in the past has taken place or the building of the road itself, the prism of the road was stripped of overstory plants, uh, uh, old growth trees, etc. And then if you have shrubs uh, just above the grasses or the fine fuels, and then if you have trees with low hanging branches just above the shrubs, that's the equivalent of a chimney. And those are called ladder fuels. Very important term, ladder fuels. Imagine the fire climbing uphill. Now, if the fire, if the slope goes downhill from the southeast towards the northwest, that's going to slow it down a little bit until it changes its behavior because it reaches a critical heat moment because it grows to a moment and then it starts to go wherever it wants. Hmm. Now is, um, what sort of effect do the diurnal winds have? You know, like the, at the mm. nighttime, you got the winds coming yeah. down slope and then the daytime, especially in, you know, mountainous areas where it's clear, you have winds coming up slope. I mean, how does that interact with, uh, wildfire patterns? Well, the diurnal wind patterns are most important in um, mountainous regions, canyons, uh, uh, steep valleys, and especially here on the West Coast, where our valleys point into the prevailing winds. So the prevailing winds coming off the Pacific augment or accelerate the diurnal wind patterns. So during the day, um, if you have bald slopes like we do in the Siskiyous on the south and southwest slopes of mountains, very quickly uh, thermal towers build up in the morning from the sunlight hitting those bald slopes, those grassy slopes. And when those thermal towers build up, they literally pull air up out of the canyon, up the valleys. And if the wind is pushing in from the Pacific, that accelerates that. So you get this double chimney effect of push. So that can be, you know, uh, magnified is the right term. So where you are on the landscape is super important relative to thermal towers. And most people don't know to look or to understand where in their mountainous neighborhood those thermal towers might be. Perhaps you want to look at the recreational um, hang gliders. <laughs> they know where they are. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, so what about this common person? I mean, there's a lot of people here, say in Oregon or on the West Coast this summer that suddenly woke up and realized that they were in a fire zone where they hadn't really strongly considered that before. Um, you know, how should these people be changing their, their perspective right now, um, on the possibility of, of large scale wildfires? Like what, what, are the, what should they be looking for? escape routes um, and because once a fire gets going you can't do anything you, you, you need to get out 
And perhaps you have done the right thing and you have protected your house. And at that point, it's the firefighting professionals, um, especially if you're paying taxes on these houses, um, that are going to do everything they can to protect that property. Um, meanwhile, and we'll talk about this next, I'll bet, mm -hmm. if you had done your preparation and you had removed ladders and you had controlled fi uh, fine fuels, the best possible outcome is that a wildfire that's moving towards you drops to the ground mm -hmm. and burns past your house under the trees. If know. you do it right and you get that result, you should celebrate. Hmm. Now, how can someone in, I mean, we're talking about, we're both permaculture design folks here. How can people uh, place other elements of their landscape to encourage that? I mean, irrigated gardens and roadways and driveways and, you know, other, you know, orchards and things that are not going to burn. Like, how can people position those in a way to encourage the dropping of fire to the ground or the deflection of fire around their property? Well, the first thing that you do is you do a sector analysis for those students who are listening. And, um, and the fire sector, like I said, is your southeast of the house wedge, if you will, using the image. Um, and then you do the assessment, the full assessment of ignition, fuel load, and pathway. And, and if you have all three of those stacked up, then you know that you have a very potentially active fire sector and you concentrate your um, fuel hazard reduction, your initial fuel hazard reduction in the fire sector. You look to see if there's a road southeast of your house or a neighbor who has barbecues or burns in their burn barrel that's southeast of your house. And you remove or control the fuels between you and that ignition potential. Then you, and then you assess your fuels. So um, if you're protecting an orchard and it's a fire season, maybe the smart thing to do would be to mow. Um, there's a lot of ifs here. All right. There's a lot that you need to control. And if you have, it's really good to have a closed canopy in your fire sector hmm. because that will reduce the growth of understory and cause you less maintenance work, less preparation work. If you have open ground to the southeast in your fire sector, you've got more fire work. So perhaps you want to put your overstory nut crops, your agroforestry to go towards closed canopy in that fire sector so that the fire stays on the ground. And then there's fire breaks, and then there's ponds, and then there's irrigation, and then there's actually tricking out your house with sprinklers that run automatically, although it'd be best if you were off the grid, if you had your own power, because if the grid goes down, your automatic watering systems are untrustworthy. I'm getting kind of geeky about this, but I suspect people are mostly worried about their homes. Right. 
Have you seen some examples in your neck of the woods where people did a thoughtful design for wildfire and actually avoided uh, the destruction of their homes because of that? Um, good question. No, not specifically. I haven't been on a site where I can do a post-fire assessment, right. the, of post, especially initial fire. What I have done is a controlled burns so that I do that. I, I introduce fire that I have some control over. Don't be humble. Do be humble. I have some control over broad scale burning and I can use that broad scale burning to reduce the possibility of a catastrophic fire growing too quickly. Right. And I know that you've done quite a bit of that and I'd love to, um, to hear more about that. I have one question first, um, just about this, this chaos stage you're talking about when we have this weather pattern that actually becomes determined by the fire. I was watching, um, you know, one of my dear, uh, favorite places, Brighton Bush Hot Springs this summer had this really big fire that was actually to the west. I mean, I'm sorry, to the east of there on, on higher ground, but still this fire was creeping down the ridge headed towards Brightonbush, and it was really going in the opposite direction of the prevailing winds, and there was a lot of fear that it, it came really within a half a mile of these adjacent cabins, and um, it really seemed like it had reached the point where the fire was moving in the direction that was really opposite to what you'd expect. It was moving towards the prevailing winds and down slope, although slowly. I mean, what, you know, and I've, I've heard, I've heard uh, firefighters talk about how certain fires at a certain stage will, will get like a, a personality of their own. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to speak about that at all. Um, yeah, actually, uh, I think two years ago down in Lake County in California, um, they had fires that exhibited extreme fire behavior that really seasoned firefighters had never seen. So there is some extreme, extreme fire behavior showing itself, which we should talk about. But then the second part that you're saying um, the, the Miller complex fires this year in the uh, Applegate Valley, the upper Applegate Valley around Applegate Lake, were ecologically positive fires. Hmm. Same with the one at Brighton Bush. So when a fire goes, uh, goes against the grain, as it were, it's likely to be a good fire. It's hmm. likely to be an understory fire with little hot spots, with right. some hot spots. And those they try to hit with helicopters or or borate bombers, which is another whole discussion. And um, so we got lucky this year in Oregon, in southern Oregon, in having ecologically positive fires, except when those fires entered um, commercial forestry lands. Hmm. Commercial forestry lands, because they are even age, because they've had no high pruning, their plantations, and because there's a lot of slash left from the clear cutting before the plantation was planted, are bombs. Hmm. I call them thermal nuclear events waiting to happen. Uh-huh. 
And and so, for example, in the Kalmyopsis wilderness, the Chetco Bar fire, which eventually got up to almost 200,000 acres, as long as it was burning within the wilderness, it actually was burning on a cycle which I can see in tree rings, which is every 20 years or approximately. And so the silver fire, the bi- silver fire, which was in the late 90s, the Biscuit Fire, which was 2002, and now the Chetco Bar Fire, which is 2017, is on schedule, ecologically positive, on a landscape that is, that is co-evolved for regular burning and t- until that fire left the uh, wilderness and moved into the commercial forestry lands, mm-hmm. at which point it became catastrophic. But there was one other thing that happened, which I'm very interested in, which was we were unlucky to have a very stable, high pressure area park on us. And that meant that there were actually winds coming from the east against Mm -hmm. the prevailing winds. And that pushed the fire out of the wilderness towards the coast, towards the southern Oregon coast at which point it became very scary. They had to close Highway 101. They had to evacuate thousands of houses. Um, It was right on the edge, and there's three levels of evacuation. Um, Ready, set, go is the shorthand for it. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so I wonder, because traditional Native American burning, which only ended 170, 150 years ago, Um, was during this same fire season. It was during August and September. But they had far less accumulated fuel load on the landscape because of 10,000 years of regular burning. And the tree rings for regular burning in my neighborhood in the Little Applegate was every three to five years. Hmm. We had a cedar stump. We cut it. When I built my house out of on-site materials... I could see in the understory fir trees that I was removing to build my house with in order to create fire, in order to improve fire resistance, I could see this 20-year cycle in on my land. Hmm. I, I happened, Wolf Gulch Ranch is an awesome fire laboratory. And we had the 1987 Cantrell Buckley fire, Cantrell Gulch fire, and that was before we bought the land in 1999. Um, and then the BLM came in in 2008, 20 years later, and forced burned 500, 600 acres on our boundary. Um, I'm doing this uh, broad scale burning in between those events. So we're really lucky at Wolf Gulch to have this lab- fire laboratory to die, not to die for. That's the wrong term, but you can point. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, that Native Americans used to regularly burn the landscape as part of their management. How how have humans gotten out of sync with natural fire patterns and historic intentional burning? Well, that's a story, right? So the first thing that happened was that the um, explorers and the beaver trappers were moving around the landscape with horses and supplies. And they were pretty upset that the Indians were, uh, the Native Americans, were burning off the landscape 
during the period that they were moving towards winter camp because they had no food for their horses. There was no grazing, especially in the Willamette Valley, which was burned yearly. Mm. And so right away, the white people, the explorers, at the, if you'll excuse me, the extractive colonists okay. um, were, were upset that they couldn't use the resources that they thought were God-given. And they thought that the Native Americans were wasting these resources, but they weren't. This was just a timing and coordination problem. That was followed by the Applegate Party in Oregon, who was looking for real estate sales opportunities. And they burnt out of the wrong season um, in order to create more grasslands in order to attract people from New England and their cows. Hmm. That's a short version of a complicated story. Hmm. But so, and at the same time, um, the, the, the explorers, the beaver trappers were bringing in uh, disease, uh, epidemics. So Native Americans had a drop in population of 90 or 90 percent or better. So they were unable to remember their traditional ecological patterning. Mm. Um, so there was a period where there was a little bit of Indian burning left, especially berry patches. But then it was outlawed. And Indians were, they actually, white people actually went to war against Indians because they were burning. Hmm. And they outlawed burning very soon. However, there wasn't any forest service yet. So then natural lightning caused fires in the West dropped into that 20-year cycle. And, and the settlers um, were fairly well protected from those because they were overgrazing and they had clear cut around their house to build their their ranches and stuff. So the wildfires on a longer periodicity, that 20-year periodicity, still kept reducing fuel hazard. But then in the early 1900s began a, when the Forest Service was formed, and that was New York State College of Forestry, um, Gif Guilford Pinchot, who was the first director of the Forest Service, set up by Theodore Roosevelt, they went into total fire suppression. And they wanted to do that because they wanted to protect resources. They wanted to protect harvestable timber, grass for uh, grazing. Um, they just thought that was the smartest thing to do. And so we've had um, 110 years or better of fire suppression so even the wildfires that were started naturally by lightning or something were then stomped on just hit them and so then you got Smokey the Bear and you got children celebrating the prevention of fires and now we have a much more interesting conversation going and and actually I want to give a shout out to the U.S. Park Service because the Park Service was the first uh, land management uh, federal bureaucracy to start having a let burn policy and to even do some, especially um, in my experience on the Lava Beds Monument south of um, Klamath Falls on the California border, actually doing broad scale burning, at which point they were restoring um, multi-species, high diversity 
uh, grasslands, which were traditional on that volcanic landscape of the Lava Beds National Monument. Awesome that I got to tour that stuff in the 80s, late 70s, when I was working for the Park Service. So this is a mosaic of approaches, but the overall thing is, as I said, um, first, the Indians burning was shut down. Then wildfire burning kind of filled in the gap. Then uh, federal management of the West um, created a no burn policy. Then we started to smarten up and learn to let some fires burn. And now the firefighting in this last season um, had that dialed into their recipes. So they did in the Miller complex in my neighborhood, let burns go more than they would in the past. Hmm. They've got smart enough to calculate um, whether these fires uh, are going to take off or not. And since we didn't have the usual prevailing winds and since we didn't have any storm systems coming in and since we were being sat on by this high pressure area, that encouraged the fire control um, uh, professionals to allow these burns to creep downhill, which is a huge ecological plus, And we really scored that way. But that high pressure area created a super big hazard for people living in the bottoms of valleys, which is where white people have settled in the bottoms of valleys. Native Americans would never be in the bottoms of valleys during the winter because of the fog and during the burning season because of smoke puddling. I like that term puddling. Yeah. And so this year, the puddling was extreme to the point of extremely hazardous and unhealthy. And a whole bunch of reports were being put out by government agencies, local and state and federal, of people to hunker down in their houses and to turn on their air conditioning because some filtering would take place. Uh, myself, I live in a natural building. Um, it's a brush wall with adobe on both sides, inside and out. I had a filtering effect through the natural building wall, which was lovely. Yeah, well, I, I live in that valley bottom here in the Willamette Valley, and man, I mean, it was smoky, super smoky for a long time, and it's, it was really hard on a lot of people. So you've presented this picture here um, of these fuel loads that have built up, and you know, we're we're talking, we live in the Western United States. We're talking about the Western United States. I don't know if this is the same situation in places like Portugal. I heard there was huge fires and a lot of other places in the world were also burning, although some of those places were much more were settled uh, by sort of modern Western civilization for much longer. But, you know, it seems like now we're in this situation here. And, you know, another another piece of information about this summer is, uh, at least for Corvallis, when I measured the temperatures in August, we actually were no longer in the Mediterranean dry summer, warm summer climate class, but but the temperatures in August actually put us into the Medita Mediterranean dry summer, hot summer climate class, some of the same um, conditions that we would find down in Grants Pass near you or in Medford um, or in the Central Valley, California. So, you know, there was, like you talked about, the fine fuels, and then we added this this really uh, above average heat to that. So 
I guess the question is, what do we do? I mean, it seems like we're so far out of sync. We're so far out of our natural fire cycles with these fuel loads and with rising temperatures. Like, how, where do we start to actually bring us back into balance? Well, you know what my answer is going to be social forestry. Right. Uh, and um, so here's the thing my assumption not having been in portugal and seen the situation except on tv a little bit is that interestingly the petroleum age and natural gas has reduced firewood cutting so in these highly settled areas like the pyrenees there used to be uh, instead of regular burning there was this um social forestry where firewood cutting and grazing um, with with shepherds and dogs, you know, clump grazing, um, mob grazing, as they call it. All of those things were utility of the whole landscape. And that over thousands of years in Europe had actually co-evolved to the point where there was remnant wildcats, where there's wildlife on that landscape, which was an oak pine savanna controlled, semi-controlled by human intervention. So here in the West, um, humans have been discouraged from working the woods near near civilization by laziness, because of uh, cheap energy. You can't beat petroleum and natural gas. The, you know, that's a whole other discussion about how much power is in there. But the transition that we have potential to do, which needs a great deal of careful thinking, is to start to transition out of fossil fuels into renewable fuels and use that renewable fuel budget to reduce fire hazard and increase biodiversity. Now, that's quite a thing I just said. Right. <laughs> that's ambitious. I think that the, the extra point here in Oregon is that, yes, um, climate is changing, ecosystems are moving north, but they can also move around the corner. So if we have it, a mountain range like the Cascades that go north and south, you're going to see the forest species marching north in a sort of a mass parade. But on the coast range, and in the Klamath Mountains in Northern California, Southern Oregon, and on the coast of Oregon, you have very complicated mountainous landscapes. And they're famous for their refugia pattern, meaning that over all kinds of climate change, and Native Americans in Oregon have been through massive climate changes over the last 11,000 years. This is not that different what we're going through now. And yet we have all these fossil of um, uh, paleo botany plants that no one thought was still alive, the Calmiopsis, the Brewer's spruce, et cetera, et cetera, the sequoia, the redwood. And those were, um, those tree species and plant species had been able to move around the corner, move on to a northeast aspect, move, move on to a northwest aspect, move off of the south aspects. So we can do that as humans. We can start moving forests and preserving um, refugia um, in the more cooler slopes 
of these complex mountain ranges while we start to manage the more solar-exposed slopes by controlled grazing, controlled burning, harvesting, more eyes on the landscape. How we do that, how we convince people that a life of labor in the forest, on mountainsides, is enjoyable, healthy, fun, and integration, you know, with nature. Well, I think we can paint a pretty picture, but I'm working on it. Yeah, right. I'm working on it. Give me another hundred years. Uh, oh, we don't have another hundred years. Uh, <laughs> well, what would you say? So, I mean, that's that's the that's the grassroots social forestry. You know, people uh, returning back to work the forests where right now they're seen more as recreational set aside areas. Um, yeah. What what would you say to the Forest Service? Right, the Forest Service. Uh, commissioner who's sitting here listening to this broadcast what do what do people at the you know kind of government administrative level what can they do and start to look at as far as forest management strategies well first cooperate with all this patchwork this actual grid of ownership so you know to get the state the native american tribes the private landholders and the federal landholders, and then there's the BLM versus the Forest Service versus the uh, Bureau of Reclamation. I mean, all these, uh, all these, just like in a university, different departments don't necessarily talk to each other in the past. They're getting better. We need the land managers to start talking to each other. And I think the way to do that is through the rubric of what's called drainage basin councils. And our one of our um, governors in the past um, uh, put money into developing what are called watershed councils, although that's not what the rest of the world calls a drainage basin. So watershed's a difficult term. Uh, but watershed councils bring a whole bunch of people to the table. So do adaptive management areas. And the Applegate was one with Jack Shipley, especially was one of the first AMAs. Well, AMAs have just recently been dropped from the uh, from the quiver of strategies. Um, so we need to get back to the AMAs, back to NEPA. So NEPA has also been dropped, where you have multiple stakeholders coming together to the table and talking to each other. But once we get to the idea of landscape scale planning and cooperation, we can actually do some stuff. We can start to prioritize. We can start to coordinate. We can start to take roads out, increase water uh, retention. Now, that's another thing that relates to fire, which is the state of Oregon only has jurisdiction over what are called navigable waters. And that means streams and rivers by stretching that definition. So streamside vegetation and riparian vegetation has been dealt with to some extent by this Watershed Council AMA conversation. However, the state discourages the building of what are called detention structures, meaning swales, small ponds that soak in water, because the state is concerned that any water that's taken out of the stream flow is going to reduce salmon 
recovery. That's wrong because we need to get the springs running again by holding water higher on the landscape, a big permaculture principle, and building water tables. We have water rights problems in the West because of first come, first serve, mm -hmm. because no one's coordinating the water rights. California is trying to coordinate the water rights. So people are building tax, tax bases, the big thing for counties and states. So they encourage building and well drilling. Well, what does well drilling do? It actually is the thing that is reducing cool water inflows uh, at the dry season when the salmonids, the baby salmon and the baby steelhead are pooled up. And so this is such a conversation. And a lot of uh, government bureaucrats are really trying to do the best they can with what they've got. But they have a really hard time coordinating especially with private landowners. And that is an inheritance of, of imperial colonialism, if you'll excuse me, um, and, 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 colon, and colonizing for extractive procedures, mm -hmm. for extractive purposes. I still think that if we can get back to these, this idea of council, of everyone at the table, of, of, of especially bringing the um, indigenous people who are still here, which we're lucky to have on the West Coast, um, into the conversation because they still know more than we do. And I want to add, because I love it, an all species council so that someone speaks for, for the landscape, someone speaks for biodiversity that some human acts as a sort of a transmedium, if you will, mm -hmm. um, to bring everything to the table. And permaculture um, and um, some professors in the Northwest University of Washington, I think Jack Thomas was involved in that, um, have a field called landscape scale planning. And permaculture is mostly traditionally been looking at homesteads because that's again where we have traction right. i mean where do you have traction so you start out in these little places but is that really going to deal in the timeline that we're looking at no we need this landscape scale thinking yeah. and we need to get this coordination together and we need to get again like osu we need to get the departments at these uh, land-grant universities to talk to each other to coordinate, to model for the Fed, for the government bureaucracies and to do the research that is important to support this kind of all, all comers conversation. And I still think, because I'm a utilitarian permaculturalist, mm -hmm. I still think we're still talking extraction. We're ta still talking harvesting, but we can talk about sustainable harvesting. And we can put and we absolutely need to have fire as a sort of a um, touchstone, if you will, in this conversation. Like, OK, let's talk fire and then let's coordinate around that. It's sort of like limiting factor analysis, which mm -hmm. is something that comes from agriculture. But here, you know, are we going to burn down? Yeah, we're in big danger of burning down because of climate change, because of landscape change and because of lack of maintenance. 
which is called the intermediary economy. At that point, you start talking lean logic and um, uh, what's his name? David Fleming. Um, We have a we have an international economy at this point, which is not doing the maintenance because the intermediate intermediary economy is more and more expensive and the productive economy is smaller and smaller. We're just gambling. That's all we're doing these days. Hmm. Now, you have really engaged in on-the-ground fire management on a much larger scale than most people, right, where you're actually doing controlled burns in your... And I don't want to say, I've been to your place, and it is a highly flammable landscape. I don't know what your rainfall is, um, <laughs> but but when I see a lot of the species there, manzanita, I mean, things that look like fire-determined species, and you're on this steep slope and, uh, you know, with southerly and westerly aspects. And so... Would, would you talk a little bit about the controlled burning that you've done there and how you've done that and when you've done that and what some of the effects have been? Um, so I so I do, I can see remnants of the ethnobotany of what the Native Americans were doing, the Dacopatiti Athabascan speakers in my neighborhood. I also can see the results of wildfire and I can see the results of controlled burning by the federal government, by the BLM. So what I'm doing is I understand that my landscape was once oak, pine, savanna, grasslands and open. Now those oak pine, those oak, the pines were cut out. The oaks are still there. And as you saw, under the oaks are uh, two species of ceanothus, a couple species of manzanita. They're highly fire dependent species. And so I am converting the understory of brush into biochar and charcoal and so that I have a little bit of support, uh, you know, a flow and income. Mm-hmm. And I'm restoring oak pine savanna, thinking that in a wildfire situation, the fire would drop down onto the ground, burn through the grasses, be a little bit easier to, to fight, as it were, or to try to control during a, during a catastrophic event. And burning, my reintroduction of broad-scale burning is is augmenting the oak pine savanna resilience and stability. Mm. Um, And there's a problem, though, which is private boundary lines. Mm. And I have an apprentice, um, Luke, who had a um, forest restoration business and he was doing controlled burning and the burning that he was doing left the property and he was sued yeah. by a neighbor, a private landowner neighbor, and he had to shut down his business. Mm-hmm. So this gets tricky. And I think the clue there for me, I have plenty of people on board. I make sure I've got good fire lines and I'm not doing the forced burning that is traditional now or or is being used by bureaucrats because they want to reduce human labor. I'm trying to copy what I learned from Dennis Martinez and the Indigenous People's Restoration Network, which is called Cool Downhill Burning Hmm. and is traditionally women's work. Hmm. So there's social things, there's ecological things, there's there's, uh, obtaining a yield. 
I mean, there's a lot that goes into what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And most people and the trails I build are multiple purpose trails, which I learned from Oroville Camp uh, out of Selma, Oregon, who's was quite a progressive uh, forester. Um, so all this is put together. I mean, I do have to admit, I'm, I'm a graduate of the New York State College of Forestry. Right. And Gifford, Gifford Pinchett formed the College of Forestry, and he used fire. And so I have a really old-timer, you know, 1960s education that helps me balance all these values and all these uh, threats and all these contingencies. Hmm. So it, it's my understanding from things I've heard you say before, and just very recently I saw you just this last weekend, um, that you are actually putting your trail systems, I mean, you're positioning your trail systems based on key line water management, but also to create sections that you then burn down slope. And, you know, you have the, your, your burn sections divided by these trails, which, which are fire breaks. I mean, is that is that sort of accurate? And how is your actual landscape scale design with access and the movement of water working into um, periodic burns as well, intentional burns? Well, you said it pretty well. Um, my, my trails are one in 50, one foot of drop and 50 foot of run. They tend to be on benches because of key line geology patterns. Um, they very seldom carry water because of the adobe soils I've got. So sometimes, I mean, I think I'm pushing the limit here, but the envelope, um, I'm using key line principles without water. <laughs> and um, that one in 50 slope, I can push a full wheelbarrow up or down it. And because of the the positioning, so I look first at ridges, and I find pads on the ridges, or they're called nick points, or and in and in key line that's where you build ponds. Well, I use those as staging areas. That's where my charcoal kills are. Once I find a pad on a ridge, I usually can find wings, or wing trails that rise on both sides of the slope of the ridge uphill one in 50. So then I end up with this pad on a ridge where I can do staging and during a catastrophic fire where helicopters can land, where where crews can set up. And then I have these trails to bring fuel hazard materials down to the charcoal kills to also act, as you said, as fire breaks um, for in the winter for doing the downhill burning. So I have these trail systems sort of stacked on the sides of these ridges. And at no point do I have a fire break that is more than um, 400 meters from the next fire break down slope. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is what I have found is a doable or controllable space when I've got my crews, which I like to have a minimum of four or six people, and it's better to have 10 or 20. Right. And, and, I'm, and this is, of course, what I'm talking about is not big road building. I'm talking trails, mm-hmm. and I'm talking wheelbarrows, and I'm talking hand tools, and yeah, some chainsaw backup. But most of the chainsaw work is done to reduce the fuel ladders and the understory fire-dependent brush um, before you do the burning. 
once you get to the burning, it's all hand tools. It's backpack sprayers. It's uh, shovels. It's it's pretty straightforward. And I'm not burning that hot. That's that point about cool burning. Hmm. You know, my flames are seldom more than three or four foot tall. Very different than strip based uh, forced burning, um, which I have seen, which I was lucky to see the BLM do next door to me. Um, I, I, I praise the BLM for trying, but I have a joke about it, which is they didn't do perfect timing. They knocked out a bunch of species by burning in early March instead of the middle of January. And probably that somewhat had to do with the process of cutting checks and writing contracts and getting everybody lined up. And so an indigenous people or private landowners are probably more capable of perfect timing than bureaucracies. Right. Um, that's really, really fascinating that you have developed somewhat of a, a design pattern involving some of these other things, access and water flow and such, uh, for a forested landscape that is actually, you know, you've designed in controlled burns. Um, so that's, that's really neat. I, I haven't heard of any other place that has done that. Um, I wanted to address one more thing that you had mentioned earlier on um, the talk. You, you mentioned for the, for the Cascades and a lot of these north-south mountain ranges, you mentioned this march northward of different species, yeah. right? And, yes. that, and that, that kind of implies that, 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 that those ecosystems are going to transition to uh, more southerly types of ecosystems. So maybe the Doug fir forest is marching north and maybe the pine forest is coming up. And it seems like the process of that march fire is, is probably one of the transformative elements there. Um, and so, you know, in the efforts of thinking about getting ahead of some of these foreseeable outcomes, another thing that you mentioned the other day when I heard you talk was about how... Um, ridge lines were logged first by colonial settlers um, where Native Americans really were managing the mid-slopes. And so I'm wondering if you can provide some guidance for how we can help to manage that march north of species, knowing that if we don't manage it, fire is going to do it for us in large and catastrophic ways. So I know that's kind of a big question, but I, I, (laughs) you probably have some Um, answers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well down in Northern California, of course, the uh, native Americans were burning the ridgelines because that was their corridors for travel and that the redwoods were down slope. So it depends, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, on what you're doing, but talking about the cascades, I think we have a really critical situation here where as the forest as a living entity, you know, of of multiple individuals is moving north, it's leaving behind a lot of fuel. Now, that looks like an extraction opportunity. Oh, we should go in and clear cut it all. But that ends up leaving too much fuel um, in the form of slash and too much road building thus hurting the water tables. So a much more delicate approach 
would be to drop uh, dying trees or trees that are struggling on contour. And that's another thing I do in my burning is I make sure I don't have any logs that are running straight, you know, dead logs on the ground that are, or fuel that is running straight up and down slope. I always move my fuels onto contour so that the fire has to jump a log going down, down slope or up slope. Well, I believe some, like especially lodgepole pine forests, could be dropped as log mulch. Hmm. This is one of my ideas. And gotten into ground contact with the logs on contour. That will create uh, bioswales, um, uh, places where snow can sit longer, where uh, anything, any water going down slope stops and sinks in, where leaves and smaller grasses and stuff build up against this log mulch that you've laid down. And what and and I also think that a whole bunch of other materials would have some utilitarian potential, especially charcoal. I'm really, I mean, we're not talking a lot about charcoal here, but charcoal is scary to me if because the Bronze Age failed around the Mediterranean basin because of deforestation, because bronze takes a whole bunch of charcoal. And if we are trying to move away from fossil fuels, we sure as all hell don't want to substitute charcoal for that. Nonetheless, getting biochar into our ag soils, increasing the ability of, of forest soils to hold water longer by, by having more charcoal in ground contact, um, perhaps first do the log mulching, maybe next do some controlled burns, Maybe next, maybe in there, there's some recovery. Maybe we have berries growing. So there's now a new crop because you've dropped these dead and dying trees. One of my, one of my pet peeves is they keep blaming the bark beetles. Mm -hmm. The bark beetles, it's an epidemic. They're killing the trees. Wrong, totally wrong. The trees are stressed. Their turgor pressure, meaning their blood pressure, if you will, their sap pressure, is way down. So the bugs are only the, the, the dendroctinus and other genera of bark beetles are basically doing ecological cleanup work. They're not killing the trees. They're the last blow. And so you heard me. No. So I did in the, one of the talks you weren't at. I talked about this very important concept. It's hard on our modern civilization. What's the difference between a proximate cause and an ultimate cause? So that kid who threw fireworks because he liked to see them falling through space right. into a canyon off of Angel Leap in the, in the gorge, he was only the proximate cause. It was not his fault that there was a catastrophic fire, which, by the way, it wasn't that catastrophic. The Gorge Fire um, east of Portland was a mixed mosaic, ecologically positive fire. It just threatened some homes. What are those homes doing there? And why aren't the private landowners doing their due diligence? Well, that's because we believe in freedom in our crazy times. So this is, again, a council problem. Hmm. This is a social problem. And I really like that uh, Heinberg 
Richard Heinberg's one of his recent blog posts was, there's no app for that. There is not a technological solution to all of this. It's a social problem. It's Mm -hmm. not a technological problem. We have all the tools and all the knowledge we need to do better than we're doing. We just don't seem to be able to get it together. Yeah. Huh. That's that's really interesting. I guess the one uh, risky thing about the um, the uh, Eagle Creek fire in, in the Columbia Gorge was it was actually starting to get into the uh, Bull Run watershed, which supplies the drinking water to about a million people um, in the Portland area. And so, uh, but that's really interesting that it was actually uh, an ecologically beneficial fire. I wasn't. I wasn't aware of that. I just, of course, you know, you hear the hype on the news and such um, about uh, just catastrophic scale of some of these wildfires. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about the difference between um, fires that are actually performing a beneficial function and then fires that have just um, gotten out of hand, especially going into uh, commercial forestry. So that's really fascinating as well. The difference, the way the, way the fire burns differently in a natural ecosystem versus a uh, more plantation style. The Bull Run watershed is a plantation style landscape. Okay, is it? I wasn't. Yeah, I don't know that. Huh. Yeah, there's been a lot of logging in that landscape. Huh. Interesting. All right. Well, um, is there anything? Uh, h- how can people get in touch with you or learn more about your work, your teachings? Take a course with you. Well, we have a website, siskiyoupermaculture.com, all lowercase running together. And it's, Can you spell Siskiyou, please? <laughs> yeah, really. S-I-S-K-I-Y-O-U. Siskiyou. And, um, and we are a very small business in a remote region, which I love living in, and it's hard to get people to our courses but I do encourage people to get down here because we have this laboratory and we have this on the ground experience. And our website, therefore, is not got all the bells and whistles that people have come to expect. So please be patient. There's a hell of a lot of stuff on that website, a lot of articles, a lot of links to other talks and stories I've given, our advanced permaculture courses, but there aren't that many advanced permaculture courses. Uh, the one we're teaching the end of this month is uh, um, optical surveying, no batteries allowed, uh, analog tools only. And then in the uh, first week of February, end of January, we're doing our traditional yearly social forestry course, um, which is that one we're filling. But other small courses are hard to fill when we're this far away from urban areas. But I'm hoping what we do is um, a good example, and we're lucky enough to have Wolf Gulch Ranch allow us to take these risks in order to advance science. Yeah, and I'd like to say that um, young people that are interested in what kind of career they're going to have in this, you know, they're interested in permaculture, they're interested in land management, I think that fire 
mitigation f- design for wildfire. I think it's huge, and and there's so many people living in uh, very fire high risk zones that I think that there could you know I think that there's a lot of opportunity for people to make a living um, helping people in that way, and I think that you are. Uh, a really great resource for anybody who's interested in that to come to the social forestry course and the surveying course and to see what you've done there. So, um, yeah, a lot of opportunity there for people who are looking. I, at, yeah. Yes. And I am interested in interns. Again, I'm way out there. Um, and I like that. Um, I would like in the time that I have left on this planet to transfer a lot of the knowledge and to get people to have a real good piece of it. And that takes more time than you might imagine. Yeah. Uh, it takes a real commitment. And I'm lucky enough to have gone deep local. Yeah. All right. Well, Hazel, thank you so much for spending the time and enlightening me and all the listeners here to the mysteries of wildfire. <laughs> and, uh, it all depends. It all depends. <laughs> and um, I look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Thanks. It was lovely. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.